Hey, Lana. Hey, Wendy. <laughs> I'm still a little sick. <clears throat> so, oh, really? I can't tell. I can't tell at all, Wendy. <laughs> well, I had bronchitis, and I've been treated for it. This is better than last week. I couldn't <laughs> even speak last week. <clears throat> In fact, I was talking to my friend on the phone, and um, she put me on speaker, and so her husband was like, is that Wendy? And I'm friends with him too. And he was like, can you take her off speaker? She's hurting my ears. <laughs> yeah, because I was so squeaky. <clears throat> and then Danielle was like, no, I can't because she laughed and it like pierced my ears. <laughs> it went so high. Aww. And I was like, no one wants to talk to me. Have <laughs> <laughs> yet to be cured. And you have bronchitis too. I do also have bronchitis as well. But you don't sound like an asthmatic donkey. (laughs) Yes. Vienna Lana's podcast. Wendy and Lana's podcast. Get literary, get literary. Hello and welcome to Getting Lit, Alana and Wendy's totally excellent literary podcast. This is series one, season two, episode nine of our romance novel, Two Person Book Club. Three people today. Yay. Yay. My name is Alana, and I'm one of your hosts today. And I'm Wendy, your other host. Plus, I'm just we have... hanging in there. <laughs> uh, plus, we have special guest Catherine. Yay! Hello! Yay! Hey, Catherine. Uh, today, we are discussing uh, It Had to Be You by Susan Elizabeth Phillips. How are you today, Wendy, besides terrible? <laughs> I'm actually okay. <laughs> I was just telling Catherine that um, this Susan Elizabeth Phillips was the first romance novelist that I've ever read. Um, Way back when I was probably around 13 or 12 and I stole a book from under my mom's bed (laughs) because she had a whole Tupperware box of them. Lady Be Good. I think it was Lady Be Good. Oh, it's from the Gulf series. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the golf series. I, my, hi, I'm Catherine. Um, I absolutely like, she writes about football and she writes about golf. And I am a huge fan of like the sports sub- subgenre of uh, <laughs> romance fiction. And I actually read It Had to Be You when I was a senior in high school. Oh. And I still have my tattered copy from then. Aww. <laughs> so. Yeah. And we mentioned Catherine previously, two podcasts ago, when I was talking about my friend who reads only football romance novels. But I meant to be, because you also read hockey. I really like hockey. And, yeah. I, and obviously, I've read some golf ones as well. So. Yeah. 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 <laughs> sports themed romance sport. novels. Is there and, any, like, badminton romance novels? There probably is. <laughs> Deck my, tennis. My friend, uh, her kid went to state for bocce ball. <laughs> so she was at the bocce ball tournament. <laughs> that would be a good one, too. That's know. definitely a good beginning of a romance. <laughs> I found some water polo ones recently. Uh, water polo. <laughs> yeah. That's ridiculous. Like, Catherine uh, has the same type of job as me. We're both business librarians, which are like librarians who work with business schools. 
and teach things like business research and stuff. And we actually met um, through uh, the National Organization for Business Librarians, and we were at an award ceremony. We're not bragging. We just, we just, where we met. We were both winning awards, and there we didn't realize there was going to be speeches, and so both she and I were like frantically. They literally told us no speeches. <laughs> and when you talk to a business librarian, if you say you don't need a speech, we actually take you literally. <laughs> and then everybody started giving speeches. Yeah. <laughs> so so like we're frantically writing them down. And there's another lady at our table who's winning like a lifetime achievement award and yeah. she like is like is like has to go right after both of us. And and I think I passed the buck by just talking about how I liked the other librarian a whole lot for my speech. And then when I was getting my speech, she was still rapidly writing her speech down on a napkin. And it, it's yeah, it was it was just one of those like poorly planned. I no longer believe them. I always have a speech. Not that yeah. I win a lot of awards, but I, I will always prepare a speech going every yeah. time I win an award, which is every time. <laughs> I mean, I won, you I won know. an award recently where I didn't realize we would get to get we were gonna speak, but um, we also uh, they also gave us this gold medallion, and then I had to give a speech, and I was like, shit. <laughs> I was I was so hyper focused on the gold medallion that we were gonna get that I I just uh, I couldn't focus on anything else. But yeah, so we're both part of the same like librarian world, and Catherine is one of our few. I mean, our mo- many podcast listeners. So, um, hundreds, hundreds. <laughs> and she was like talking about hockey romances. I'm like, oh, you should be on the thing, and we should read one one of the books that you like. And so, um, uh, and here we are. That leads here us to are. today. Yeah, uh, I think you sent me a note about, hey, do you have a good NASCAR romance? I'm like, I don't follow NASCAR, but I follow football and hockey. And then we were trying to decide, and so we went. I decided let's go with a classic because this is really like a classic in the genre. It was written in the nineties, nineteen ninety four, and it's still like a book that, you know, like it. It's just it is. It's one of the classics in the sports subgenre of romance. Yeah, yeah. Um, as can be told by the same author. I mean, Wendy had read before um, um, from yeah. that period as well. So, what are you drinking, Wendy? I'm drinking a Dr. Pepper and rum. Nice. It's <laughs> theme related. I feel That's like good. rum is good for bronchitis, basically. Jägermeister. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> what are you drinking? I made a mic- micada. Michelada. Michelada. Thank you. Um, And I was originally like looking for football game day drinks. And Mm. I liked this one. I don't know why, but it seemed like some sort of like Bloody Mary. Seemed like something like football related. It just seemed like a good idea. Um, So we made this one and I named it Chicago Tomato Stars. It's got tomato juice in it. And Chicago Stars (laughs) is the team in the story. Uh, it's got tomato juice, a whole lot of lime in it. Um, Worcestershire, Worcestershire, Worcestershire. <laughs> this is this is. We're we're gonna start a sub podcast that is just Catherine saying words correctly. 
I mean, it's probably the only time I've said that correctly. <laughs> uh, fish sauce, hot sauce. It's got some salt around the brim um, and some Jeez, cilantro. It's one intense drink. It's like a oh. meal drink. <laughs> I know it's pretty. It's pretty delicious. Um, What's funny is I'd actually heard of this drink before because I read. It was the drink of choice from a character in a hockey romance I read recently. Don't ask me the title. I don't know. It was on Kindle Unlimited. But <laughs> anyway, and then it has a Mexican beer in it. Uh, so it's basically like a Bloody Mary that you make with beer in, in it. Uh, and, it's, and it's delicious. It's a pretty smooth drink. It's not too alcoholic. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and you had a rant that was related to... This particular book, right, Wendy? Uh, yeah, it's it's more related to just um, contemporary in general because, well, especially from this time too. Like, I think I think I developed this theory at the age of thirteen when I was reading <laughs> my mom's. You know, mom's while you were stroking your novels. your age of thirteen beard, like just stroking it. Like yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I was I was such a deep child. Very serious. Um reading romance novels and thinking about it. I feel like nothing's changed. That's fine. Anyway. <laughs> so there's there's such a thing in contemporary romance and definitely in like romance like rom coms as well. Especially from that time as well, like late nineties, early two thousands. The emotional virgin. So, like, they're not technically a virgin because, you know, in the contemporary world, nobody's really a virgin. Like, we're not going to believe that. But they've, it's like they've had like a couple of like awful encounters or um, they just haven't found the right person or they haven't had any good sex. And (laughs) they just, they are like uptight. And they don't know what it's like to be in love. You know, Regency romance and those other historical romances really focus on, like, the deflowering and that kind of stuff. And it makes sense at that time, you know. But we can't really bring that to contemporary. So we make them, like, neurotic. (laughs) And, And they've had, like, maybe one boyfriend. Or, such as in this romance... They got sexually assaulted and then they stopped dating. Or like there's just this this like crazy idea of virginhood where they suddenly are a virgin again. Or like they have never really had a true relationship. Like you see that as a trope. It's like a way of recycling it in a way that like maybe as a reader we can stomach. Yeah. I think it's a lot. It's supposed to give credibility to like... This has never happened before in their life, mm-hmm. so that it's the first time. So this this time it will stick, or something like that. Because can you imagine like a romance novel heroine being like, "Oh yeah, like I married someone and I loved them and they were great, but then it didn't work out." Like <laughs> that's not that's not romance. It's like even like there has been books where I've read where they even get married, but. Th- they marry an asshole, you know? Yeah. So they're like, I don't know what's wrong. And then they meet the right person and they're like, it's all new again. Everything's new. <laughs> the funny thing is, but love is 
whenever you get with somebody new, it's new. You don't have to go through this whole revirginization. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In, in romance novels, you need to like re-become like a little like a beginning state human. Yeah. Like yeah. Like there's this idea in romance novels. I think it's because it's supposed to say like to its reader, like, okay, you guys have all like probably like experienced some of these things, but this is more serious. This is more magical. Like, we're gonna yeah, have some magic. This is, this is the most magical, guys. <laughs> in case you didn't know. <laughs> romance novels are really big into promoting like the monogamous, you know, one true love thing. Um and for some reason, having had previous partners makes it less credible. Like that's just so strange. Like the woman in this in this book, she has had previous partners, but she's like every once in a while it's like she slept with one person and she didn't like it. But she's never really had like an orgasm in a <laughs> in the while having sex and she was sexually assaulted, so it's like it's not great. <laughs> and in this actual book, she 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 tells the her the hero of the novel to treat her as if she is a virgin <laughs> at one point. So yeah. it gets really it gets really uh like, I don't know, it's yeah. Because she doesn't want to actually have an honest conversation about, hey, this happened to me, we need to talk about it. Oh no. Let's not have that. And rather than that, let's just pretend Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Poets and, like, this is not a new idea by any means. Like, this whole idea of, like, just really uh, treasuring the first moment, you know? Like, the first moment of love or the first moment of attachment or, you know, the deflowering, which happens in Regency all the time, <laughs> um, through accurate or inaccurate <laughs> misinformation you know um but it's just it's it's one of those things where like a poet would talk about like how you can never have a first time again you know and i understand that but also no like <laughs> well, the, the fact is the first time when you're with somebody it's actually not as good as it is later because you're yeah. not communicating. Yeah. I mean, there's it's sort of like a trope in which, like, there is this idea of the first to something mm-hmm. being really excellent. But that's not a reality. Yeah. Reality no. is not normally that great. And that's not the reality in many things. Like, the first time I try bocce ball, I'm probably going to be pretty bad at it. Right? <laughs> yep. Everything gets better with practice. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I have something really random that I discovered. But I, I'm i a genealogist as a hobby, and I was looking at some old history books, and I always thought deflower was spelled D-E-F-L-O-W-E-R, and it's actually deflower as in, like, the grains so of D-E-F-L-O-U-R. That is not true. That is ridiculous. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> I saw it. I'm like, it, that it was changes actually, everything, guys. It, it, I saw it, it. I was reading this story that affected my own like ancestors, 
And there were like a court case where like basically my, you know, seventh, eighth, ninth or whatever great grandma, you know, despite the fact that she was taken to court because the local minister had basically deflowered her, like she still had a good relationship with her husband. And this minister was supposedly like basically deflowered like almost all the women in the town. So I have a feeling there was some coercion involved mm-hmm. and maybe, you know... You know, I, I read this because this, this text was written in uh, the 19th century, mm-hmm. around 1850, mm-hmm. uh, a history of some small town in Maine. And I'm like, and the big aha was like, number one was, well, you look at how history reflects things. And I have a feeling this was a guy that was in power. But number two, my understanding of the spelling of deflower was wrong. I mean, Wait, what, if it's, what if it's like a donut metaphor? What? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. I'm really stressed out by this. What about like baking metaphors? Like you were deflowered. Something without uh, flour. <laughs> I don't know. But I was just like. You mean like flourless just... chocolate cake? Because that's fucking delicious. <laughs> it just blew my mind when I, when I was reading this old history book from the, about this county in Maine. Um, talking about the history in the 1600s. I was going to ask if this was like before we standardized spelling. It was probably before. We it was it was written in in the 19th century. Yeah, but, but that's still like the 19th century is when they standardized. Yeah, it's on Google Books. Well, listeners, <laughs> please look into this flowering issue. <laughs> Get back to us. Here's what I think deflowering means. You take a grain, you make it into flour, you smoosh it back together so it's a grain. That doesn't make any sense. I'm just really stressed out by it. I'm so glad I could bring stuff to the podcast. You can't do it. <laughs> and Wendy is fine. They're just putting it back together. They're putting it back together. And, she, and she's next to it. Stop! Maybe you're ruining fried chicken. Yeah. Yeah, you're just deflowering it. Yes. Gross. Are you telling me that you fried chicken with flour on it and then you scraped off the flour? No, I you deflowered it. hate this. I hate it so much. <laughs> this is that whining asthmatic donkey voice again. <clears throat> we should just have a deep cut of you and me co- we coffee while laughing and you making a whiny donkey noise. Oh... Uh... Uh-huh. Deep, deep I'm so glad mind. I could break something. You need to go back because at one point, uh, Wendy argued for deflowering during that conversation. <laughs> You're like, flour is chocolate tortoise delicious. <laughs> that's, no, that's no excuse. That's no excuse for, for sexual assault, Wendy. <laughs> that's not a good excuse to have sex with a woman. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you though, flowers chocolate cake is where it's at. Uh, oh god, uh, yeah. that has a whole new meaning uh, now. <laughs> You've ruined the cake. <laughs> uh, oh man, uh, 
Oh, That's man. too much for me. I can't even handle it. Let's too just much. move on to talk to the book. Talk All right. The book. All right. Let's talk about the book. Um, I'm going to read a l- the little bit. Um, I'm going to read the back here. The Windy City isn't quite ready for Phoebe Somerville, the outrageous, curvaceous New York knockout who inherited the Chicago Stars football team. And she's definitely not ready for the Stars co- head coach, former gridiron legend Dale Calbro. Cal- Dan Calibo. Dan Calbo. Calbo. A sexist jock taskmaster with a one-track mind. All right. And it goes on from there. But uh, just just because I always want to say it, after this point, we're going to have spoilers. So if you haven't read it already, it does not really matter because because uh, we're just going to talk about it and it's a romance novel. But I guess I guess we we start with, what did you guys think of the book? <sighs> <sighs> Well, shall I start since I actually recommended it? Yeah, Yeah. go ahead. All right. Um, I was asked, because I like the sports subgenre, to recommend a book to read. And so I I came up with this one because it's kind of a classic in contemporary sports romance. Um, I read this for the first time when I was a senior in high school, so that completely dates me. Um, (laughs) And I still reread it every couple of years because I do enjoy it. That said, it is such a romance that was written in the 1990s. It has a lot of things about it that are very uh, common, like common tropes that you would have in romances from the 1990s. But it also strangely, in some ways, is actually kind of ahead of its time. So it's it's a really kind of an interesting mix of things. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of problematic elements, but it also has some things that are like surprising because it wasn't stuff that was commonly done or talked about or discussed in romance. So I just thought it was like an interesting book. And I also really like the fact that it has several like what the fuck moments, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's, that's, you know. I would say that I did give this a three on Goodreads, which is pretty high for me because I really couldn't totally hate this book because it is really well written, right? As a romance novel, it's a person who knows the trade. And who knows how to set up characters in ways that um, mean make them slightly less predictable, but still fit into the tropes that we're expecting. Um, I, I I was saying that like right before this to Catherine that it's both of its time. It was written in nineteen ninety four and ahead of its time at the same time in in a couple of ways that we'll probably talk about next. But I mean, I didn't totally hate it. Some of the things I liked was the re- relationship between Valerie and Phoebe. Uh, in which there's sort of a mutual admiration. Um, and, and I just, I really like books of this time period where there's kind of multiple relationships. There is a kind of different relationship between one of the side characters who was like kind of an aggressive guy who fell in love with like a librarian type. I thought that that was a pretty good subgenre, sub, su- subplot. What do you think, Wendy? I didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to hear more about this progressive side because I was trying real hard to find it. And I didn't find it. (laughs) There is a lot of discussion of consent. Now, it's not perfectly discussed. There are issues about it. And then they all immediately, like, go back on their discussion about consent. But the fact that there yeah. is this discussion of consent throughout the book, that I, I find really interesting because it is absolutely, like, if you look at most romances that were written in the 90s, 
I would say, you know, one of the things is this this book does feature a character that has suffered from sexual assault, which is a really common fiction trope, especially in romances written in the 90s, whether or not you're talking about historical or contemporary romance. But as a result, there's like kind of this constant eventually there's there's discussions of it, even with the subplots with what's going on with Dan and his ex-wife and and then ultimately with with Phoebe and what how she manages to work through basically her trauma and all those things. Yeah, and um, keep in mind this was written at the same time as Outlander. Yeah, 1994. Yeah, <laughs> where so, people were being raped left and right. Yeah, you get raped. You get raped. You get raped. Everybody's getting raped. There is, uh, in Outlander, it's all the first book, there's a lot of villainization of homosexuality. Um, and this book is, I mean, not, there isn't really a whole lot of gay characters. But there is a certain fluidity about those characters, and they're given a lot of agency in the story. Um, yeah, and, and what's interesting, like, like even Dan, Dan, our hero, who is very much alpha male, he's not in any way, which I think is a, ahead of its time, um, you look at... Uh, her Phoebe's best friend who is oh my god I'm blanking on his name what's oh, his name Victor Victor and Dan is secure enough in himself that you know normally like I would say if you look back at books in the 90s they would be all freaked out yeah they well yeah because basically Victor several times has a has a thing basically for Dan yeah and and he really <laughs> just kind of laughs it off and it's not a you know as opposed to if you look at Outlander where 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 uh, homosexuality is is very much meant to challenge male sexuality, right? Yeah, like in the story. I will say that this this book made me think a lot about the the term bimbo and the usage of like for instance, there's this one webcomic I've seen where it's like this hot girl is like hugging a jock, this nerd is looking at them and he's going. Why can't she love nice guys? And then a nerd girl is looking at the nerd boy and she's like, why can't he love nerd girls? And then the jock is looking at the at the nerd girl and he was like, why can't I be with a girl like that? And the only person left <laughs> out of this beautiful moment of like self-indulgent emo-ness is the hot girl like the hot girl doesn't get anyone the hot girl is thinking that she is like um she's perfectly fine because he likes her she he really doesn't like when i realized that when i was looking at that comic i was really really pissed and (laughs) and you know what like that like i have that that bias as well like if i see someone that's really hot i'm like oh they're dumb or if like somebody who's really hot shows up on in a romance you're like oh she's gonna be the villain because they often are like you know like freaking flame in the arrow like there's some girl that (laughs) was hot and therefore evil hot equals therefore evil you know so yeah like i i thought a lot about that and i was like fuck like this is the worst trope ever, you know, because like just just because she is sexually aware of herself and she's hot, that makes her a slut. And that the fact that she's a slut makes her a bimbo. 
And if she's a bimbo, she's just an object. Like, that's just, that's the fucking worst. And there's times where I've been like, I'm glad that I'm not like super hot because I've seen, I've been on the sidelines, you know, and seen these guys just like objectify this woman, you know, and I've, I've not had to deal with that. And that's <laughs> like, that's sad. That's just sad. Yeah, I just want to add, I have a lot of friends who are female professors and the ones that are very attractive really struggle with people who assume that the only way they got where they got was because of the way they look. Like, it's a real thing that happens. And these are people who have PhDs, you know? Well, one thing I find interesting is, like, the main character, Phoebe, um, she uses her looks and her sensuality as kind of a weapon and um, as a way to fend people off, which as a defense mechanism, I think you see, like I a couple of years back, I was watching uh, Carmen at the opera and suddenly I had, you know, there's this depiction of Carmen as always being kind of like this gorgeous, slutty woman mm-hmm. who tempted this man who eventually killed her. And then I was watching it and I had this aha moment watching that that thing and I'm like she's coming on strong because that actually makes everybody back off yeah and I'm like it's just kind of like an interesting and and she wanted to you know if she came on strong she could do that and that idea of a defense mechanism and and that she was ultimately you know she's the victim she was not uh I like I now when I listen to Carmen and what you know she always was the victim but now I know she's the victim whereas sometimes I hear other people's interpretation of, of that particular opera and you know I see kind of like a similar thing with like with Phoebe in here she's trying to do whatever she if she comes on really strong she can then you know keep people at a distance yeah and I feel like there was as I was reading the character of Phoebe there is a sort of like so there's this idea of kind of wearing feminism femininity you know Mm -hmm. which I think we all do I think we kind of like dress in a way that that reflects feminine power but there's also a thing about like the female body in which you can't really you at, like certain body types can't really flow in and out of masculine and feminine like if you have like breasts large breasts or wide hips um wherever you go you're going to be perceived as a more sexual object even though you're not wearing anything that that shows that sexuality in an outright way um which is kind of like a hard thing about being a woman is that like a lot of times when you look at like like feminine critiques and the idea of drag and the way that you can put on all the different accessories of femininity and then kind of kind of use feminine power, which is kind of the idea of drag. But then there's the the idea of the actual female body, which is I think often what Phoebe adds is that Phoebe is built like like a bimbo and she can't and so she chooses to own it, but that's because you can't when you're a certain body type, you can't really like, you're going to be harassed, at least in terms of street harassment, either way, right? What, one of my yeah. favorite lines is in here is when she's talking to her sister and goes something along the lines that you come from, um, uh, she makes a comment about the fact that she, both she and her sister are daughter of showgirls. Yeah. And those showgirls have so much strength and guts and, uh, and you know, you come from sequins and rhinestones, be yeah. proud of that, Molly. Um, and, and these women were survivors 
and they dealt with all kinds of things. Um, and, you know, it's, I, I don't know, that was, when I reread that, that's one of the moments in the book that strikes me, that her whole relationship with her, that she tries to build with her sister. Yeah, who's like this very much like Adam's family type of, like, uh, what's the name of the kid in, in Adam's family? When, but in, Wednesday. Wednesday, a very Wednesday type of character, very smart, very, <laughs> you know, like the other half of that environment. And there's kind of an interesting interaction between these two different characters. Um, yeah, and as but, far as performance goes, um, she doesn't think that she can be a bimbo, like perform like a bimbo, like a what's-her-name does. So she performs like a nerd. Like yeah. that's the that's the thing that she puts on. Because she's like yeah. talking about... Do- reading Dostoevsky and instead she's reading Daphne du Maurier or however you say that which I still feel like is like classics like I don't know <laughs> why that was an that issue book. but <laughs> first book I read in my freshman year of high, call, uh, high school uh, <laughs> but it's also like the the theme of those two different stories like being acting the nerd or acting the bimbo is the male gaze which is very much one of the places where the book kind of I don't know, misses a chance for a critique in that it sort of assumes that the only reason why women do things is to attract or, to, or repel males. Well, that's a problem with romance tropes, <laughs> period. Yeah. Or romances anyway. But, like, yeah. that we have no other... <laughs> no other motivation, which is the problem, ultimately, with Phoebe. Is she has no motivation uh, beyond the ability to attract or repel males. Yeah. That's all That's all her motivation is as a character. Either she's trying to attract a male or a male. Like, that's the only two skills she has. Well, what I find it, but she grows, though. And in the end, she got, realizes not only she's smart, but, you know, she, you know, ultimately becomes essentially like the CFO. Yeah. Yeah. And she <laughs> makes some good decisions, right? Yeah. Uh, as the CFO, you know, in, in terms of the, the, um, in terms of the, the place. But, um, let's talk, um, I want to talk also about, uh, the main love interest, uh, Kyle Blow. Uh, Wendy, what did you think of, of Dan? I thought he was kind of gross. <laughs> I agree. He's also kind of gross. <laughs> I've listened to this on audiobook, which is probably a bad idea, because the woman who read it did, like, the worst southern accent, <laughs> which is, like, you know, That's like, fake low voice. That's literally what Catherine was telling me earlier. Yeah, the um, same thing. I was rereading it this weekend, and I didn't quite get through it, so on the drive up, I was listening to it on on audiobook, on Overdrive, and it yeah, is the worst Southern acts. I'm like, it's so yeah. painful. Mm-hmm. I'm like, and, I'm, and I've lived in the South, so I'm just like, oh I my God, this is the no worst. <laughs> yeah. He's like, you know, he sounds almost exactly like the stereotype Georgia lawyer. Like, <laughs> you know, that specific area of the South. It's not even Alabama. <laughs> no. Yeah, I had a really hard time with them. I had like um, a lot of... Also, okay, so football's really big where I live right now. And um, there's this coach for our football team that I see his face everywhere like I just can't get away from it and he's got like the every time I see him I think you have the features of a man but your features are more like he's got a bigger (laughs) mouth and he's got a bigger chin he's got a bigger nose he's got a bigger forehead but I mean yeah so that's 
That's exactly what I thought of when I thought of Dan Kalebow. 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 <laughs> Dan Kalebow. See, I don't think she pronounced his name right. I think it's Cal. Really? I've always in my head pronounced it's Kalebow. Kalebow. Uh, well, okay. Kalebow. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, a lot of the time he was... Just like talking to her, like she he was giving a lesson, which was <laughs> gross. Yeah. You know, in his like southern drawl of like, now you see the moment that we talk about this is gonna be a lesson for you. Uh-huh. I'm just gonna and then also like I just don't, like, I don't have patience for the masculinity of the 90s anymore, which is, like, him, like, joking about, like, the the tiny dog, you know? Like, I can't, I can't walk the tiny dog because that dog is sad because it's not masculine, you know? <laughs> like, just get over yourself, like. The the fact that she like she was like haha but if I was in that situation I would look at him like are you fucking kidding me like it's a fucking dog yeah <laughs> yeah and I think like this yeah he has like a, a a whole masculinity to him that uh I mean is just so over the top in how he like he seems to be very disrespectful of everyone else in the story. Like, it's not just her. It's, like, everyone. Well, I, I think it's very classic yeah, alpha especially. male from the 90s. Like, he's yeah. not as extreme as, like, I've read a lot of, like, Linda Howard. And I can't read. That's who I, I was thinking Linda. of. <laughs> I can't read Linda Howard anymore. She's the worst um, mm-hmm. when it comes to, like, if you think Dan is bad, mm-hmm. reread a 1990s Linda Howard. And I'm like, oh my goodness. But yeah, no, it's just very 1990s alpha. Mm-hmm. I read Suzanne Brockman, I think. I love she- Suzanne Brockman. <laughs> there was one where the guy was clearly uncomfortable with a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure he said that. I am uncomfortable with gays or whatever. And I was like, oh, okay, this is great. I'm going to put this down now. Actually... Can I talk about Suzanne Brockman? Sure. Because it's interesting because the character that you're talking about is Sam. I have all her books. Uh. And it's really interesting because Sam grows because over several books. Oh, and yeah. in the no, end, his best friend is one of, is actually a gay FBI agent. And she is actually was like, she actually was one of the first mainstream romance authors to actually have a book where one of the central main characters was a, it was a gay romance. She very much over time, you see the progress in the whole book series Mm -hmm. and she has the same characters repeat over and over and over again. But like, uh, yeah, I know you're talking about (laughs) Sam. Sam was kind of a Texan. I love how you know exactly the character I'm talking about. I do. I have all, I have all of them. And I reread, like, the whole series. Like, I'm a book reader. And I know which one you're talking about. And it's interesting because he'll even admit, he's like, I was freaking wrong. You know, he's like, I was an idiot, you know. and The one I read was 
either over the edge or on the edge. Yeah, it was right. It's at the very beginning of the series, and there's like 18 books in the series now. Yeah. And, and like, she also I, was one of the first people to have multi, uh, interracial relationships and people of color and uh, relationships in a mainstream romance. Yeah. So. Um, one thing of in terms of, if we're going to talk about gay gayness in this book, um, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yes, yeah, sir. So the reason that I didn't finish it, besides the fact that he was very homophobic, um, <laughs> no, I finished that book, but I didn't want to continue with Susan Brockman. Um, the fact that there was a sexual assault in that book and it was really hard to get through. And then I didn't want to, like, read about sexual assault anymore, so I decided to move on. I think that was the pre-9-11 book. Was it the one with the hijacking? Yeah. The plane hijacking? Yeah. It was the hijacking. Yeah, that is probably one of the hardest ones in her books to read because of what happens. And it's something that actually, like, the whole premise of the book was written before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't happen. She couldn't write that book today because of how things have changed. Yeah. And it's really interesting to see, and I don't know, this is like, this tells you how geeky I am. I'm like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, but I want to talk about sexual assault, because that is an important part of this book. And in light of the Kavanaugh proceed, um, which I was listening to the Kavanaugh hearings while reading this book. Um, and there's a story of a, a high school sexual assault, um, well, high school age sexual assault, where um, she tells her father um and he doesn't believe her um and so then she flees to another country into basically a a group of gay men uh where she lives kind of the rest of her you know 20s and stuff um and then later in the book she finds out that she's a person that she's falsely accused the sexual assault person and actually it had been her cousin, I think it was. So uh, gross. Who had, who had that part was so her. gross. So so like what did you guys um like in light of when we were reading it, uh, what did you what 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 are your thoughts here? Like, I my thought was thanks, Catherine. <laughs> you know, when I picked this out, it wasn't supposed to be this timely. I picked this out well before any of we. Yeah, I was like, this is the most like. Uh, <laughs> I think I sent a, a a text to Alana going. Oh my God! This this book is way more timely than I had even anticipated. <laughs> yeah. Specifically, what do you have like telepathy or uh, are you a fortune teller? Uh, yeah, but I don't like, know. Susan Elizabeth Phillips, though, she has a scene in this book where she, Phoebe's pulling off a, a, a huge con, and she calls somebody to help her pull off this con. This was written in 1994, and the person she calls is Trump. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! And they're like, Trump is always into this. I'm like, this is the moment. This is the moment when he decided to run in 20 years. Oh my God! If I could go back in time, Trump was the Deus Ex Machina. (laughs) Trump was the Deus Ex Machina. He was the one that solved the problem. Yeah, (laughs) that is messed up. Yeah, it it had it had. This should be called. It had to be Trump. Oh my God! (laughs) No. It, no, it, 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 <laughs> that that whole the whole issue about her her attack happened in a dark shed. She didn't see the person. She associated it with who she'd been kind of had a light flirtation with all night. But what got me was you were kind of set up from the get go that her cousin was 
a real villain in this piece, including with stuff that had happened to her. So I wasn't overly surprised, and especially when you get to a certain point where he kind of says, I know what really happened to you. And you go, do you really? And she's not even sure she believes him. I don't know. It was really problematic, you know, especially in light of today um, and what had happened, you know, it's this thing about believing people and can people be believed? And I, you know, I believe we should believe victims. Um, but the way the whole thing kind of played out, it for something written in 1994, it was just strangely, coincidentally aligning mm-hmm. with modern and things that I wasn't happy that has ha- have happened in the last few weeks. She was wrong. She yeah. was a victim. And she blamed a certain person. And she brought that person to the forefront because she believed it was him. And she was wrong. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's not the best with Kavanaugh. (laughs) I mean, the thing that kills me is that I felt like even though it's the 90s, which technically is after feminism, I felt like this was pre-feminism where she said to herself, I am being characterized as a bimbo. Therefore, I will be the opposite of a bimbo. And I'm just like, that doesn't work. Like, it just doesn't work. Like, using the opposite of that, they're just going to blame you even more. And that's what happened. She was thought as an actual bimbo the entire time. Like, she was not given any credibility. Even Kelbo or Kalebo or whatever he was, he thought she was dumb. Like, straight up, doesn't understand anything. Too stupid to figure out how to put on her own shoes. Dumb. Like, until the end. Until he found out that she was not sexually um, promiscuous. I thought that was a little bit of, like, playing the fool type of thing. I mean, I thought that whole thing was fine. But in terms of the sexual assault, like... Like, she goes through a pretty interesting transition in there, but it's still really problematic in that she doesn't... They don't seem to really want to see the full ramifications. Like, Dan pretty much nearly rapes her when he thinks that she is his ex-wife, who she has this kinky thing um, with, and then she's willing to have sex with him, like, later that night. <laughs> um, yeah. like, and, and that's, like, one of my worst, uh, the tropes I hate, which is the nearly sexually assault. You know how I can make, how I can feel better? By. Actual sex. By sex actual solving sex. sexual assault. Yes, yeah. Well, that, and which happens also in Outlander, right? Well, like, it, it's really common. Yeah. Uh, it's a common trope. I've used trope way too many times in this discussion. Oh, no. That's that's pretty <laughs> typical. There's plenty of them in this area. That said, I will say, at least when they finally have, like, a serious discussion, like, the whole scene where she, where they do have the conversation, where she says stop and repeatedly does that. And I even think at one point he does. Yeah. Which, in itself, of course, ventures into the realm of some... Yeah. Pink. But um, that said, it was interesting because just at that point, it seemed like at least they were having a good discussion about consent. But it's, yeah. it's Yeah. Yeah. Like consent is the big issue in the book. In particular, like they bring up um, Story of O, which is like, it. 
I have read Story O. I read it like I used to follow the Vaginal Fantasy Book Club, and they read it because it's like a, um, it's like a classic of the S and M world. It was written in the fifties, uh, and it is it gives me nightmares. Like it is a terrible, scary book. Um, and it, if that's like your model, if that's the model that Dan's going for, I was like. This is the grossest. Like this is, <laughs> and it kind of reminds you of it, it's. It's during that time, which I think we're still trying to figure out, in which books want to incorporate new ideas about like kink and S and M and stuff like that, but they don't really know how, and they don't know, and so they just basically write sexual assault, um, and then they just they just put a put like a a fantasy vibe around it, and and I think more books like. That book we read about, like, the um, intergalactic stripper, I think does a great, much better job with uh, S&M um, than this book does. His Precious Cargo. That, that's <laughs> it. Yeah. That book was great. That book was great. I need to read it. It is, it is surprisingly good. Though we were, we were just talking the other day about how you can't recommend books because sometimes they, like, in romance novels, they get become dated and stuff like that. Well, it's like, I love this book, but I also recognize it's terribly problematic. But I like it as a beach read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's talk about the cheerleader thing. Because the cheerleader oh, thing gross. is gross. So at gross. one point, they, they, they basically write the scene. The first time you meet Dan, he meets a, a 16-year-old girl, a cheerleader, in a gas station, goes back to his apartment, and basically fucks her. Goes back to her, her parents' place. place. And fucks her. And then it becomes clear that it's like some type of elaborate game he has with his ex-wife. But you don't fucking know that. You don't know that. If you, re- if you read read through that scene, you realize that he doesn't know who he's looking for when he gets to the convenience store. And then he's, his eyes set on her. And uh-huh. he's like, oh, I guess this is where we're going tonight. And, you yeah. know, so to speak. And... And at least he acknowledges that this was really gross and ventured on, like, kitty porn and he didn't want to do it again. But it's still really gross, right? Like, like the, he still did it. It's the first sex scene. Yeah. That's, like, the thing where, you know, we were talking about in um, Master of Ecstasy, how it's like, you don't need to fucking show that, you know? Like, why <laughs> did we go through the entire thing yeah i think it's you know it's funny because i remember reading this at 18 and going if this is what my hero is doing i can't get behind this hero i'm gonna have to throw this book out so i'm like if if this is where it's going and it's funny because i remember like being at mom's weekend in college and my mom was reading it and i'm like you're at that scene aren't you and she's like yeah i'm like just keep going (laughs) (laughs) it's too much I just felt like if it were me, I would have cut that whole scene. Because, I mean, it does explain something, like, kinky and about their, like, whole sexual relationship. But it sets up this weird issue. But maybe that's what, what you were getting at with the whole, they didn't know how to deal with kink. They don't know how to write it. And so then you end up with this thing that's really... Gross. It's really gross. Um, and it's really hard to figure out how to how to deal with it and so yeah you didn't and so then you had this like sexy cheerleader thing which this is the same period as you know this is pre i mean 2000 is when you had hit me baby one more time yep the sexualization of high schoolers was much higher than it is now i Um, I actually would disagree with that because i think it maybe not in romance but when it comes to things like anime mm -hmm. uh my uh 
I have a niece who's really into anime and into manga, and she has a real issue with the fact that a lot of their characters are like older men who are basically having romances with 15 and 16 year olds. And so it just may not be as present. You know, it's still very much there in our culture. Oh yeah. I think it's still around, but I think it was, yeah, it was like when I was reading it, um, like Catherine had told me that, that it, this book was going to be problematic. And I was like, this is a level <laughs> of problematic. Here it is. I was, I was not expecting. I was like, is this going to be like his issue? His, his like, problem is that he on the side has sex with high schoolers that's a big problem that's a big problem to have like if i were to make a pros and cons list what did i sign up for yeah. <laughs> at least dan was like dude this was gross and creepy to his ex when it was done but still he does he does the kidnap thing which is even worse uh. he accidentally does the kidnap thing to the girl he's I mean, he's down for it, obviously. Like, he could have said no. He could have been like, girl, this is stupid. And (laughs) even when he dates someone else, he still inputs consent issues and SM issues into the relationship, such as the idea with, like, he has this word in which he says now, and and she has to have have sex with him, no matter when. Which is, like, a common thing in romance novels. I think, I think is pretty but... But the fact that he has to input this, I, I hope, I'd hope she'd be like, no, like I'm, but, but no, it's, they just go with it. Well, the, yeah, I, I think that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, cause you know, that's what we're here for. That, I mean, honestly, that sort of, that sort of <laughs> fantasy type of thing is something that is what romance novels are what honestly about? all about. Yeah. Like the, the <laughs> idea of, of that it's never, it's never a bad time to have sex. that's so true yeah i i just don't know like her reactions to that kind of stuff is so completely dissimilar to what i would to how i would react i would be like uh no that's not gonna happen today (laughs) or any day yeah um i just i just wouldn't date somebody like that i just that's the problem I mean, I found him a little bit interesting in that he was such a strong male character, and yet he was married to this congressperson who was very much their own person, and whose who's like deal had nothing to do with him. But she's like basically frigid. But she also like she. I I think one thing I mentioned is like if this book would have been written today, like Valley would have made a pass at Phoebe, right? Like, like that was something like fluidity of, of sexuality is something that I doesn't think, I don't know that I would agree that she was frigid she was actually pretty no I mean I mean like she's like emotionally frigid okay. like there was a very there's a very distinct difference between Phoebe who pretended to be sexually aware and what's her name who actually was sexually aware and just didn't want to like like there was there was a little bit of animosity behind the fact that she wanted to have sex and she didn't want it to be about a relationship and she wanted it in a certain way and um I like I just kind of felt bad for her. <laughs> I think one of the issues that is and it's something that I think is problematic in our culture is there's a lot of like undertones of Madonna whore. Yeah. Yeah, throughout definitely. this book. 
is so prevalent. Like I would say, it, yeah, it's, it's huge. <laughs> and, and the fact is, is, you know, like part, repeatedly Phoebe's like, I just want to get married and have babies. Mm-hmm. And dad's like, I want to find somebody who could have babies. Oh man, that was really tough to. And then on top of it, you know, there's like this other secondary character, um, uh, Sharon Anderson, who looks like the perfect woman to have babies with, but really Dan has kind of built, feels this just kind of like so a milk gross. toast, and <laughs> that that whole element of Madonna horror, which which is an icky element. It's icky, and also like that was one of her redeeming factors. Like, that was a major redeeming factor of Phoebe. The fact that she seemed like a slut and she wasn't, actually. And and that she actually wanted to be a mom. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the fact that she had, to, she, that she was, that she was a Madonna underneath, right? Yeah. Like, she was, that she was a, a good person underneath, right? Mm-hmm. Was something that redeemed her somehow. Like, yeah, that was gross, right? That said, I would say I identify more with Valerie as a person, probably. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. I was like, you career woman don't get no breaks. I'm like, that said, you know, I know she's not greatly depicted, but I don't think she's... Ultimately, there's a respect there, I think, at least Dan has for his ex-wife and what she's doing. And doesn't she end up with Jason Keene, like the the developer, and they seem to be perfect for each other? Yeah, well, I thought that she was the nicest treated ex-wife ever in one of these romance novels. Like, like there's a lot of understanding given to this woman, and the fact that she just wasn't finding what she needed in Dan, and Dan wasn't finding what he needed in her, and that they had this very sex-positive relationship, but that it ultimately had to end. Yeah. Right. So I felt that to be like I, you know, like respect, right? Mm-hmm. Because I, I feel like she could have been so shrewish. In the story, right? So I felt like her main reason being in the story is so the author could write more sex into the story. Yes. <laughs> Extremely po- problematic sex. Exactly. Because <laughs> she couldn't get the, you know, the, the rule of threes. Like she was trying to get a sex scene into the one third area without yeah. losing the tension. So, hey, look, there's an ex-wife right there. Yeah. <laughs> I like Valerie though. I have to admit, I'm like, but I probably identify with her. Did she come, did she come back? No. Uh, she would have been great. Of not. But she but she gets her happily after ever after with Jason Keene, the guy she that Phoebe pulls the con over with uh Donald oh, Trump. Yeah, yeah. I feel like she she should have her own separate erotica, just her. Like <laughs> like a sub story. I just like okay, so there was this one time where um you know like Force Awakens, is that the one where where they like Star Wars? Yeah, Star Wars. Like Force, no, not Force Awakens. Whatever the most recent one was, where um that pilot goes against Leia and that woman, you know, you know. Oh what I'm yeah. About? There yeah. was this moment where I was like, I just feel for her. Like <laughs> <laughs> that woman who was in the um. Was in Jurassic Park. I don't know her real name, but oh, Rogue, we're talking about you Rogue know, One. We're talking Rogue about Rogue One. One. Yeah, Laura Dern. I'm actually related to her. Oh, really? Like distant cousin. That's funny. I was watching that movie, and I had this entire separate plot line going on, where she like had risen up in the ranks after a lot of fucking hard work, and she had this like 
relationship with Leia when she like Leia did like sworn off you, men. You were basically after... writing fan fiction, aren't you? Yeah, I was writing fan fiction in the movie theater, sitting there <laughs> going, "I, I'm sorry, girl. I'm just so sorry." And then this fucking upstart is like we're gonna start hurting people and then he just like rushes off and he kills most of the people of the resistance and she has to sacrifice herself and i'm like god damn it like this poor woman like she just tried so hard to get a leadership role in this freaking resistance and she has to sacrifice herself it was just like that's that's how i felt about um what's her name the ex-wife yeah, yeah. She's just trying to make it. Leia's girlfriend. <laughs> mm-hmm. She totally had a relationship with Leia. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, I so overall, I thought it was well-written, but I don't know if I'd read more of them. Um, I, I just, like, I don't care about football. I would say uh, it actually, the series gets more problematic. The third book, like, Heaven, Texas, which is about Bobby Tom, is actually a really fun read. But when you get to the third book, Dream a Dr- Little Dream, it actually is rapey. But in this case, um, a woman is basically rapes one of the football players. And it's really kind of gross and creepy. Like, if you think this is creepy, <laughs> I can't handle the third book. <laughs> I just thought, like, I had this different impression of Susan Elizabeth Phillips, where I thought they were all, like, super light ridiculous contemporaries that um the woman is always a virgin and she's like trying to like be bad and so she like puts on some makeup and then she like you know gets a fake yeah that that's that would be the kind of heaven texas that and and also lady be good those were kind of the the (laughs) storylines there uh next we're gonna keep going in a contemporary romance novels and we're going to be doing biker romance biker romance (laughs) (laughs) and we will hopefully be in better health by then hopefully Uh, both of us yeah we haven't put out what we're reading but we'll let you know but we're hoping to to read something in the biker romance area continuing on our contemporary area you know i was looking that up it's my job to find the book and there are a lot of naked torsos <laughs> i'm excited to go back to that genre my version of uh of it had to be you has a picture of a dog on the front and i felt like Don't... i wasn't even reading a romance novel yeah i had a picture of the dog of the dog and her her shoes whereas i have the very classic novel cover from when it was first released which has cupid and pic and little just really parts. big but what yeah. we need we need to read more romance novels with torses Yes. If you ever want me to come back and we want to talk about hockey romance, yeah. I, I actually have like some good like naked torso new adult hockey romance recommendations. Wait a minute, why didn't we read that? <laughs> you know how I feel about torsos. I think I want to read football because it's football season. <laughs> it's football season. The Boilers just won last night. They beat Ohio State. That's um, great. I don't know anything about football. I ignore football. Thank you for listening to Get Em Lit, available monthly on iTunes. For extra bonus features for this episode, you can visit gwenwendy.com slash s2ep9. 
where you can also read more about Wendy and get cocktail uh, recipes as well. You can follow Alana on library at Library Alana, and you can follow Catherine at at KV Macy at KVMACY. I'm oh. really easy. On Twitter. <laughs> What's the best type of romance novel, Wendy? The trashy kind. <laughs> Vienna Lana's podcast. Wendy and Lana's podcast. Get literary, get literary. Woo!